America where money grows on trees and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wearing custom, wear masks, and ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later to America, and we married the next year. I also assumed, just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then. After years of unresolved marriage problem and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15th, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made the announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her of making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the ultimatum to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave without any hesitation. Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife. You would have heard less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live, so I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet of homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never being much a reader on the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of, of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called the number from the back of the pamphlet. I was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. 
You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very, very happy. She told me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> I told her this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has God on her side. But I realized that her transformation was not an, only a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Let us... Little did I know God also work on me. So I started to go to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and His Word. It was while studying the Word in my church and in BSF, I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents. Do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house, at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet, began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs, and to be clear, not all gay men do drugs. Some do, some don't. I'm just telling my story, not everyone else's. But I began trying drugs, and I also started selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration of school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago, where we were from, to Louisville, where I was going to dental school. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My father was a dentist, and he knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, 
as we all sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they are going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than our children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But you know, the sad reality is many people in America may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then many will return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. In essence, we often force our kids to do the same. Our parents putting more emphasis on their children getting their homework done on a daily basis, getting a better grade, getting into a good school, all good things. Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon our kids following Jesus? Nothing is more important than following Christ. But honestly, I was not happy about my mom's decision. Because she wasn't on my side, I felt she was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there, I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Mom. But little did I know he never read them, and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allowed us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused but I left it on his counter anyway and walked out. We found out later he took my Bible, threw into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. She would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knee, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap for Christopher. 
I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor: don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I would never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I would not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears, as I trust every moment I plead. I pray those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, "Wait, be still, and know that I am God." Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed. That we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, "We are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace." As we devote those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of His grace, as God drew us to Himself each and every day. Often, answer to prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle. To bring this prodigal son to the father, and a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were twelve federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs—not my largest—but they confiscated all my money and my drugs. And I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, "Whenever you need something, just give me a call." Those friends that get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was, I had a praying mother at home. Watch out! And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So, you mothers out there, beware of your prayers; they're gonna come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home, and I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line, but my mother's first words were, "Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace." The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse four, 
that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul doesn't say that it's God's anger. He doesn't say that it's God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down and next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape. And she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place <laughs> compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And to be honest, I was doing all that I could to stay to myself. I mean, think about it, I didn't want to mingle with those really, really bad people, you know, those criminals. <laughs> and I passed by this garbage can. And I looked at this trash and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class, suburb of Chicago. My father had two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made, but now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book for the first time. I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I was not thinking, this is the Word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I just thought that I've got tons of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion. And it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things going to get worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. I was handcuffed, chains, hands chained around my waist. My feet were shack shackled together. I shoveled into her office. I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper, slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H-I-V positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up 
his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. This solemn and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone, the pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumbled up the the stairs and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet string of hymns filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Sing with us. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. One more time. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. A few days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There is graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in exile, in rebellion, he could even have a plan for me.
I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I got down on my knees. I said a sinner's prayer. And then everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. Far from the truth. God began convicting me of my dependencies, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, he delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. I kept reading, and I came across some passages, three in the old, three in the new, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain and asked him his opinion. You know, I'm a brand new Christian. I'm like, I know, I know like nothing about the Bible. I have to ask someone who's studied the Bible, gone to cemetery, seminary, the chaplain. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, and he even gave me a book explaining that view. So think about it. With tons of curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for same-sex relationships. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and His Word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. If the chaplain said God blesses same-sex relationships, I thought, well, I want to read that for myself in God's Word. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, a crossroads. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to control who I am. And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. We all know God loves us unconditionally. But don't we as sinners often just want to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It is not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I had thought, before I had become a Christian, I had thought to become a Christian, I had to become a heterosexual. And what does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I thought, the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. 
But I realize that even if a man had opposite such attractions, he would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality might be the right direction. It's just not the right goal. Because think about this. God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. <laughs> but neither did God ever say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. They're both the wrong secular Freudian categories. And instead, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Thus, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations. Jesus doesn't say, oh, come to, you know, come to me and I'll, you'll never be tempted again. Jesus himself was tempted in every way, but he's without sin. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible. So I called and collected my parents, told my mom and dad, I said, I think God's calling me to ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was really excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out until I realized I needed references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write, write my references. So amazingly, I was actually accepted. I was released from prison July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then I had the incredible, one of the greatest privileges that I had was to co-author a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, a broken mother's search for hope. We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. She wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, alternating chapters, interwoven narratives, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent to prodigal, but the beautiful part is how God and his power and his grace brought us all back together. This book, Out of Far Country, has a free eight-week discussion guide at the back that several Christian, um, that several small groups are using, uh, students, college students on campuses are using, and we've actually found out that several Christian high schools are using this as a textbook. Our testimony is now being used as a textbook. Who would have thought? But it actually makes a lot of sense. Our kids from pre-K on up are being flooded, intentionally flooded with resources on sexuality from a non-Christian worldview. You know, I am fully convinced that the job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. It doesn't belong in the hands of social media or TikTok. 
You know who holds the primary responsibility? Parents. I'm going to add something else to that because parents, you need a lot of help. Not just parents, grandparents. Any grandparents in this room? See those hands. You know why I'm adding you to the list? You have too much time on your hands. <laughs> the real reason is this. Grandpa, grandma, think when you were kids, teenagers. How much did you or your peers listen to your parents at that age? Maybe grandma, grandpa, you actually have more of a listening ear to the teens than the parents do. Are we using it or are we wasting it? Are we using it or are we just continuing to allow the world, allow the world to confuse our kids? Are we using it or, or are we throwing this lifeline to our grandkids that are drowning in a tsunami of lies? Anyone want to change that? I think we, it's time we take it back from the world. Amen? Who wants to take it back? It's time we take it back. I gave this challenge in rural Oklahoma. And this older lady, like after we finished, she made a beeline with her cane back to our book table. And she told us, she, she went like this, like even before she got there, she's like, I need 10 books. And I was like, wow, you just need one, one. No young man, I need 10. One for myself, nine for every one of my grandchildren. She said, I'm gonna mail each one of them that book, I'm gonna read it with them, and then I'm gonna use that study guide and discuss it with them. A grandmother, a fearless grandmother. She said, I ain't taking no chances. Silence is no longer an option. Oh, when is it too young? I've got these little kiddos. I used to say six to eight years old is when we need to start. I don't say that anymore. It's three to five. It's three to five. If our schools are starting at pre-K, why do we want the world to beat us to our kids? Amen? Wouldn't it be great? We talk to our kids and be like, has anyone talked about sex yet? No, praise the Lord, let me be the first. Let's make that happen, amen? Fathers, let's make that happen. Mothers, grandparents, grandfathers, let's make that happen. I know right away you're like, I don't know where to start. Well, I wrote my newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, and we can go back to the, the, the previous slide, uh, the black and white book, where I talked about, um, you know, not just what not to do, because sometimes our message is don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Important. But we can't stop there. We can't build a Christian life just on God's no. What is God's yes? That's why I wrote this book. It's a book on biblical sexuality. And in a nutshell, it's chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. As Pastor Scott said, this was named 2020 Book of the Year. So it was like a COVID book. You, you don't get COVID from it. You just, you just <laughs> came out during that time. But... Um, since that time, I realized, man, I, I wrote this for adults, young adults, college students, but we need something for teens, don't we? Need something more than just, you know, what not to do about abstinence, more than just, you know, uh, just be nice. We need something that kids can be set up for life. So I'm right now in the process of finishing Holy Sexuality Teen Curriculum. We're super excited about this big project. It's a 12-lesson video curriculum. And we're going to have a version for Christian schools. We're going to have one for churches. But actually, those are not our two main versions that we want to push. Our biggest version is the version for parents and teens to do at home for grandparents and their teens to do at home. Because the majority of these resources are resources for the church, great. For schools, great. But do they hold the primary responsibility? No, should be supplemental, secondary. 
So we want to resource you parents to be able to use this curriculum. So you can scan this QR code, put in your name and your email address. I'm about to finish it. Um, it'll be out hopefully the beginning of 2023. My mom's like, oh, can we get it out this year? Uh, we've been, I've been working on this for like three years and they just kind of just rolled back. The enemy does not want this out. It's the first of its kind that's going to be specifically for parents and their teens. So we're really excited about this and all you need to do is going to be 12 lessons. It's going to be three videos, each lesson, a 10 minute video. So all you need to know is how to press play. Anyone know how to press play? <laughs> Grandparents, that's all you need to do. With your grandkids, let's watch these videos. And you just press play, 10-minute video, and then have some discussion, about you know, five, eight minutes of discussion. Show another 10-minute video, and then have some more discussion. And all this will be guided along. You'll have this kind of parent, grandparent instructor guide. And then I'll close with another kind of two-minute video. And it's going to have some animation. It's going to be really, really high quality. It's actually... It's a very big uh, investment, but we are all in. Anyone want to be all in? Because silence is no longer an option. Amazingly, God has given us back that the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents for the past two decades have traveled around their nation or on the world speaking God's grace and truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has such a sense of humor because he had brought me back to Moody where for 12 years I taught in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far more abundantly, far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, I know for many of you, you might not have ever heard a story like mine. And, and the worship team can come up now. You might not have ever heard uh, a, a testimony like mine. A guy who used to identify as gay and now no longer does. And that is true. But that's not how I would summarize my testimony. May I summarize my testimony? I once was blind. And now I see. I once was lost, and now I'm found. I once did not believe, and now I believe in the Son of God, and his name is Jesus. That's my testimony. You all probably are wondering, why we have this music stand here and it's not being used. On July 3rd, my dear father entered glory. And he was such an integral part of our lives our ministry, we traveled together all the time. My parents lived with me. We did everything together. My mom cooked, and he washed the dishes, and he never complained. Listen up, husbands. He traveled. I travel about 70 times a year. He traveled I never, have a, uh, I never travel alone, so my mom always travels with me, but he traveled with us, the three of us, 40 to 50 times a year preaching the gospel, more than the majority of 40-year-old men do, and he was 82. He was very, very, very sudden. He fainted, fell, hit his head in the parking lot, and two days later, his heart stopped. And on that day, it was a Sunday, and we were very, very clear. My mom told me that we need to tell everyone, Dr. Leon Yuan is not dead. He is more alive than he ever was before. And he would want 
every one of you in this room and watching to have that assurance of eternal life. Coming to church does not save you. Having a, a good Christian spouse does not save you. Having parents who read the Bible to you every day does not save you. Believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will have eternal life. And if you don't have that, today's the day. What are you waiting on? Our days are numbered. Let's pray. And with our heads bowed, if you have not, you don't have that assurance, you never confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, do this with me now. Just pray with me. And I just want to say a prayer does not save you. Jesus does. But this is as you pray, you're going to confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. You could say it out loud. You could just say it right where you're in your seat or say it in your heart, in your mind. God, you created me. Yet I sinned. And I deserve death. But you sent your son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, went to the cross willingly to die for me. Then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the grave so that I will rise with him. God, help me to live the rest of my days for you. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us. For those of us who know you, who are redeemed, Lord, help us to not squander these days. Lord, help us to be proactive. Help us to make disciples and especially make disciples of our own grandchildren and our children. Empower them to understand, embrace, and celebrate biblical sexuality. But most of all, Lord, help us to follow Jesus. Lord, we love you, but help us to love you more than life. For it is the matchless, powerful name of Jesus that we pray. And the people of God said, Amen.